Frank Abagnale is a former but legendary imposter. Over the course of years, Frank Abagnale pretended to be various white-collar professionals and in one case pretended to be the chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital. He was convincing enough to become the supervisor of residents, uh, resident interns. Now remember, he was not a doctor and he didn't even play one on TV. The position was administrative but not exclusively so. He concealed his incompetence by allowing the interns to do the medical procedures. And it worked until a serious case almost exposed him. A nurse came to Frank uh, and, and alerted him of a blue baby. When an infant turns blue because their, their blood is not fully oxygenated. And at first, Frank didn't understand the meaning or seriousness of the situation, and the baby could have died. He soon left the position. This is a true story. Imposters are dangerous. When, when you go to the doctor's office, you want to know for sure that your doctor graduated from medical school. And he has knowledge and proficiency and skill to help you. If your surgeon is simply a night shift security guard in a white coat, you want another surgeon. Uh, our confidence, our confidence is based upon whether Jesus is who he says he is and can actually do for us what he says he can do. Our salvation depends on his true identity and integrity. What gives us confidence in the identity and integrity of Jesus? His resurrection. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it confirmed the identity and integrity of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. The resurrection is the conclusive sign that Jesus is truly the Christ and has rescued us from our sin and misery. Many professing Christians today lust for signs, wonders, and miracles. I think the popularity of supposed faith healers and their crusades confirms this. Many religious people want to experience signs, wonders, and miracles so badly, it's as if the gospel isn't enough for them. And, and so often, the people most infatuated with signs, wonders, and miracles are also those most confused about the gospel. The good news of the crucified and risen Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Where do you look for comfort, assurance, and confidence that God accepts you and things will be okay? Where do you look? Do you look to the gospel of a crucified and risen Christ or to some mystical religious experience? What exactly has the power to comfort and assure? Today's text demonstrates that observing signs never satisfies skepticism. The text also presents Jesus Christ as the preeminent prophet and king whose identity and integrity are confirmed by his resurrection of the dead. The Old and New Testaments testify to a crucified and risen Christ. And when this Christ is received by faith, repentance and rejoicing become the cadence of life. We don't need additional signs or miracles to persuade us to trust Christ more deeply. We simply need the gospel, which presents the apex of signs, the resurrection of God's Son from the dead. 
Brothers and sisters, we believe that Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. This is our confession of faith. And this miraculous resurrection confirms the supremacy, authority, and power of Jesus the Christ. Our confidence in Christ comes from God vindicating Christ by resurrection. My point today is simple. Repent and rejoice for the resurrection is real. Jesus is no imposter. As prophet, Jesus is the word of God. As priest, Jesus is the sufficient sin atoning sacrifice. As king, Jesus is the victor over sin, death, and Satan. And his resurrection proves it. The, the only fitting response to him is repentance from sin and rejoicing in him. Today's, today's text is one of judgment, but it is also one of promise, one of hope, one of joy. Number one, no miracle or evidence will satisfy an unbelieving heart. I've said on numerous occasions that unbelief is not an evidential problem, it's a moral problem. For someone to say that they need more evidence in order to believe is really a smokescreen for another issue. They don't want to submit to God. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. What had Jesus just done? A sign is an event that points to something greater. A sign reveals something. It conveys meaning. Jesus had just healed a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. That was a sign of his identity and integrity. Why didn't they interpret that sign and all the other signs correctly? How, how could they attribute his power to Satan? How could they conspire his destruction? Signs will never satisfy an unbelieving heart. Jesus says the same thing about the sign of Jonah later in Matthew 16, and there the Pharisees ask for a sign in order to test Jesus. Jesus then accuses them of not being able to interpret the signs of the times. They saw, but didn't believe. John 6 is striking. Jesus miraculously fed thousands and thousands of people and connects it to him being the bread from heaven. John 6, 14 and 15 recount, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. A little later, Jesus calls these people to believe in him and they have the gall to to say to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Are you serious? Wow. He had just fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. What sign did they want to see in order to believe? See, no sign or evidence will satisfy an unbelieving heart. No sign is clear enough. No miracle is mighty enough. No argument is good enough. No teaching is convincing enough. Sin makes the heart blind to the sign and evidence. You see, it's only the powerful and sufficient saving grace of God which can open the eyes of the blind. Signs 
will never be enough. Jesus didn't perform signs on demand to satisfy the lusts of the flesh. Jesus is not an entertainer. Jesus is not a genie. The, the, the thought of the skeptic, which is often this, if God simply gave me enough evidence, well then, of course I would believe. Well, that's actually a lie. That's a big, big lie. And it's also ignorance. Perceiving evidence and signs doesn't create faith in anyone. As Heidelberg 65 says, the Holy Spirit works true faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul didn't say that faith comes from seeing signs, wonders, and miracles. Faith comes when the Holy Spirit works it in the heart through the hearing of the gospel. I find Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 1 quite telling, quite helpful. He begins, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, if Paul was living today and he was among the, the church growth strategists and experts of today, he would conclude, okay, if Jews want to see signs and if the Greeks want to hear eloquent wisdom, then we need to give them signs and give them eloquent wisdom in order for our churches to grow, in order for our churches to be relevant, in order for us to, to, to be successful and make a difference in the world. But this is not what Paul concluded. Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified. For Paul, the power was in the preaching of a crucified and risen Christ. People don't need signs and wonders. They need the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. Preached clearly and preached faithfully. Why do so many people demand a supernatural sign when one conclusive sign has already been given them in the gospel? Signs never created faith in anyone. Does the gospel of a crucified and risen Christ satisfy you? Number two, evil and spiritually adulterous people lust for signs and are not satisfied with the gospel. Jesus responded to the Pharisees and scribes who asked him for a sign, verse 38, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Jesus had given plenty of signs, but so many never interpreted those signs correctly. Were, were they looking for some big sign that really sealed the deal? It seemed like Jesus was addressing an insatiable appetite for miracles and persistent unbelief. And Jesus added, but no sign will be given to it. Dr. D.A. Carson commented, quote, Jesus says that signs are denied this wicked and adulterous generation because they are never to be performed on demand or as a sop to unbelief, end quote. So in other words, Jesus will not cater to the evil and idolatrous desires of people. And he will not perform signs as a sop to unbelief or as a way to satisfy the unbelief of his opposition. Jesus knew signs would never be enough for unbelievers. Jesus was calling them evil. 
Jesus was calling them adulterous. Now, here, adulterous is not referring to sexual immorality, but rather spiritual adultery committed against God. Adulterous in this sense means moving away from God to fall into the arms of other lovers, into the arms of idolatry. They sought a love affair with supernatural and astonishing things without love for truth, without love for God, without love for other people. What would another sign do if they didn't repent at the signs given them already? Now, in the Gospels, we do see people coming to Jesus and asking him to do miraculous healings for them. Um, but, but many of them came in faith, believing that he possessed the power of God, and Jesus extended them much compassion in miraculous healings. Those petitions are different. You see, some people seek but never find. They seek with unbelieving hearts and their sin blinds them to what they need to find. The blind don't find. Think, think, brothers and sisters, about the kindness that God has shown you in opening your eyes to the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. Think about the benefits of the crucified and risen Christ that are graciously yours through faith. Christ died and is putting your old nature to death so that evil desires no longer reign in you and you can offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice of gratitude. Christ rose from the dead so that his vindication would be your vindication. His righteousness would be your righteousness. He raised you up with him and has pledged to you, dear brothers and sisters, a glorious resurrection of your body. It is faith in the word of Christ that assures us of these gifts. Number three, the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead is the definitive sign of his supremacy and authority. And the proper response to it is humble repentance, complete submission, and exuberant rejoicing. Now, there are several parts of this point, so I will will break them down. God raising Jesus from the dead is the definitive sign of his supremacy and authority. In other words, his resurrection is the final and most important verification of his identity as the Christ and authority as the word of God. Now, of course, healings, uh, healing diseases, healing disabilities, raising the dead, all testify to Christ's supremacy and authority. But when he died and God raised him from the dead, it confirmed that he is truly righteous and justified in God's sight. The resurrection removes all question. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus Christ the Lord was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection testifies to his identity as the Son of God. Look at verses 39 and 40. Jesus said he would not give an evil and adulterous generation a sign. No sign at all except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, the Pharisees and scribes were well acquainted with Jonah. How was Jonah a sign? Where was Jonah pointing them? Now, Jesus believed Jonah was history. 
not fairy tale, not myth, not legend, history. Jesus believed Jonah was real and that the story of Jonah actually happened. Jonah was a sign and an actual historic event conveying meaning, pointing to something more significant than itself. Jonah was a sufficient sign for the Pharisees and scribes, but their unbelief prevented repentance. Verse 40 says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Now, here's a summary of the story of Jonah. God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach divine judgment and repentance. Jonah said no. He jumped on a boat and headed in the opposite direction toward Tarshish. God sent a tempest. The ship was getting destroyed. And then the sailors hurled Jonah into the sea. And Jonah 1.17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2 was uh, Jonah praying from the belly of, of the fish deep within the sea. So he, he was conscious and alive, and that's impossible, and that's the point. God was graciously sustaining Jonah's life as a sign of a greater miracle. Now, some of the words of Jonah's prayer went like this. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited Jonah out alive. And Jonah went to preach judgment and repentance to Nineveh, and Nineveh repented. Essentially, God raised Jonah from the dead, from, from death in the depths of the sea. Jonah was a sign to Nineveh of the power and the authority of God in his word. Jonah's message was God's message. His rise from the depths of the sea was divine authentication of the message. Verse 40, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried in the grave for three days according to the Jewish rendering of time. This can get a little tricky. D.A. Carson noted, thus according to Jewish tradition, three days and three nights need mean no more than three days or the combination of any part of three separate days. End of quote. This is how the Jews understood time, differently than how we see it today. Jesus was dead and in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and he emerged alive. Jesus here was using typology to proclaim his own resurrection. One source explains this about typology, which is really an important way for us to interpret and understand Scripture. Typology is a method of biblical interpretation whereby an element found in the Old Testament is seen to prefigure one found in the New Testament. The initial one is called the type, and the fulfillment is designated the antitype. Either type or antitype may be a person, thing, or event, but often the type is messianic and frequently related to the idea of salvation. End quote. Jonah was a sign, a type, a real person experiencing supernatural, God-directed event that foreshadowed a greater prophet, a greater resurrection, a greater gospel. 
In John 2, the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And it's really interesting how Jesus responded. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John clarifies, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. The resurrection was the sign. And John 2.22 says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The resurrection of Christ confirms scripture and the preaching and teaching of Jesus the Christ. Jonah was a shadow of a greater prophet. The, the shadow is never as clear as the object itself. The shadow was seen first and was meant to get people thinking, what's casting this shadow? Where should I look to see the greater object of this shadow? The, the, the shadow was meant to get them to look up to the crucified and risen Christ, the apex of history. Dr. Carson again said, Jesus' preaching will be attested by a deliverance like Jonah's, only still greater. Therefore, there will be greater condemnation for those who reject the significance of Jonah's deliverance. Condemnation for rejecting the significance of Jonah's deliverance. See, the Pharisees and scribes, they knew about Jonah's deliverance and they believed Jonah's deliverance, but they failed to see the significance of Jonah's deliverance. What a horrible error to see the type but not the antitype. To see the shadow but not what casts the shadow. Jonah was pointing to the death and resurrection of Christ and the authority of Christ's word. And after Christ was crucified and resurrected, unbelievably, the religious leaders still rejected him. One note explains, Jonah's being rescued by God was a sign to the people of Nineveh that his message was from God. Jesus' death and resurrection will likewise be God's sign to the present generation. The resurrection is sufficient to confirm everything Jesus taught, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes what Jesus taught. Now, the second part of this third point is this, the proper response to the definitive sign of the resurrection is humble repentance, complete submission. And exuberant rejoicing. This is what the Pharisees, scribes, and skeptics failed to do. They didn't humble themselves and repent of their sins at the coming of the kingdom. They, they didn't come to Christ in true faith and submit themselves to him as their king. They didn't rejoice in the coming of the kingdom. They were an evil and adulterous generation who actively opposed and rejected God's son. Something greater than Jonah had come and they refused the greater prophet. Brothers and sisters, we don't refuse him. By grace, we don't refuse him. We receive him by faith. It is our joy to repent of our sins. 
It is our joy to trust in this crucified and risen Christ. It is our joy to subject ourselves to His authority. It is our joy to rejoice in the gospel. Our response to Him, brothers and sisters, shows that we indeed have received grace upon grace upon grace. Number four, throughout history, many people repented with less gospel. How much more must we repent with a full gospel? The gospel was first given in paradise many years ago, right in the garden. Genesis 3.15, God preached, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was God preaching the promise of a a redeemer, a great redeemer, a coming savior. One to rescue them from the curse of the fall. But as history unfolded, the gospel was preached in more and more detail and clarity. We call this progressive revelation. The gospel was becoming more clear. The Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants added detail and added clarity. The prophets added detail and added clarity. People before the cross and resurrection repented of their sins and trusted in God's covenant promises with much less gospel detail and clarity. Jesus gives two historic illustrations of this, which of course was an indictment, as he often did, of the Pharisees and scribes who refused to repent at the Christ's preaching. Verse 41 and 42 The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Nineveh heard Jonah preach a gospel of God's judgment and they believed it and they repented of their wickedness. If this pagan Gentile city repented at the preaching of Jonah, well, how much more should the Pharisees and scribes repent at the preaching of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Jonah was a prophet of God, but Jesus is the prophet of God, the preeminent prophet of God. Jesus is the word of God incarnate, in human flesh. The gospel was personally dialoguing face to face with the Pharisees and scribes, and they were rejecting him. At the resurrection and on judgment day, the Pharisees, scribes, and and skeptics will be condemned. And the testimony of the Ninevites will contribute to their condemnation. The Ninevites are further evidence of their guilt and condemnation. Now, who's the queen of the south? This is a really cool story. So let me quickly read uh, some of it for you from 1 Kings 10, 1 through 9. And when I read the scriptures... I like the the senses that it's appealing to as it describes this. You know, talking about spices. I like spicy food. And so when you hear about spices or hear about gold and you can imagine extreme wealth, it it really pulls you into the story to know what's happening. So I, I find this really compelling and a really cool story. This is what happens. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, 
She came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes, my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. That is that is exciting. That is good. Traveling was very difficult back then, not like it is today. And the Queen of Sheba likely traveled over 1,200 miles to visit Solomon. I mean, she really wanted to be in the presence of this king to hear his wisdom. She heard, she believed, and she praised the God of Israel. The queen admired the royal majesty which God had bestowed on Solomon, the king. If this Gentile queen believed the wisdom of Solomon, believed the wisdom given him by God, how much more should the Pharisees and scribes believe the wisdom of the king of kings, the wisdom of God incarnate speaking in their midst? Verses 41 and 42 are really an a fortiori argument, an argument from the lesser to the greater, from the lesser to the greater. If the men of Nineveh and Queen of Sheba, Gentiles, believed God's word from Jonah and Solomon, how much more should the Pharisees and scribes believe God's word revealed to them in much greater detail and clarity from God's chosen and anointed and preeminent prophet and king? Please don't miss what Matthew is doing here. We use this language at Jerusalem Church because it's the language of Scripture. Don't miss what Matthew is doing. He's laying out for us the messianic identity and supremacy of Jesus. Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Verse 41, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the greater prophet, priest, and king. He is the Christ. He is the word and the wisdom of God incarnate. His resurrection is the conclusive sign. Folks, the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ and the doctrines of Christ are preserved for us in the Bible. This marvelous book, words testifying, words on the page, words preached, 
Words explained, words heard, words testifying to the full and glorious gospel of Christ. And we believe it because God, in his infinite mercy and grace, has opened our eyes to see the glory of God in the foolishness of a crucified and risen Christ. God has granted us faith by working it in our hearts, by the preaching of the gospel and strengthening it by the use of the sacraments. We have absolutely no reason, brothers and sisters, to doubt the gospel. None. And when we doubt, because we do sometimes, and when we're insecure about our salvation, which I was wrestling with yesterday, we do get insecure. So when we doubt and when we're insecure, we don't need signs. We don't need miracles. We don't need mysterious and unexplainable supernatural encounters. We simply need the gospel preached over and over and over and over again. And we need the Lord's Supper, which assures us of Christ. From the word and sacraments, the sign of Jonah is made clear to us. Jesus Christ was crucified and risen and lives forever for our salvation. Do you know how the Pharisees responded after they realized that Jesus rose from the dead? Folks, unbelief is frightening. Frightening. How irrational, how blind, how completely ridiculous. The next day, That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how this imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The resurrection happened. Earthquake, angel, and then this. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. When the definitive sign finally came, they rejected it and lied about it. Make no mistake, a sinful human heart has an aversion to truth. That is why it is only the Holy Spirit, the miraculous grace of of God that can transform and open the human heart. It is only by His grace that anybody gets saved. And so how, how merciful and gracious and compassionate and kind of God to lay out the gospel in full clarity before us in Holy Scripture. How loving of God to give us countless sermons through the years, unpacking the wonder and value of a crucified and risen Christ. How could we not repent, brothers and sisters? How could we not rejoice in the gospel? Paul said God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. 
Peter told Christians of the dispersion, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Saints, we love this crucified and risen Christ. We, we don't see him, but we believe that he is risen from the dead for our justification, and we believe that he alone is our salvation, and so we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And one day, we will stand before our joy face to face, and it will be confirmed, and it will be seen to be worth it. We will see. So I end with this exhortation, number five, repent and rejoice for the resurrection is real. Repent and rejoice because Jesus is the greater temple. Repent and rejoice because Jesus is the greater prophet. Repent and rejoice because Jesus is the greater king. Repent and rejoice because, brothers and sisters, you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Repent and rejoice because you have been raised with Christ. As Paul said in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We must not be like the Pharisees and scribes who stood before the gospel and refused to repent and rejoice at the coming of the kingdom. We must not be that way. Brothers and sisters, keep putting sin to death. Keep repenting by God's grace and rejoice. Rejoice in the process, for the Father has given to you his kingdom. Look to Christ, your King, and find gladness in his pardon and find strength in his gospel. You have the sign that you need. Jesus is risen from the dead for you.